I remember sitting in a friend's office down at the downtown district headquarters for Denver Public Schools and I was telling her all these cool things I was doing. I was doing this and I was doing that. And she looked at me and she said, what about the kids? It was like a gut punch. I think that was when I realized that I couldn't just be thinking about creating opportunities for adults to learn. And I honestly had completely stopped thinking about kids. Hi, I'm Diane Sweeney, and I'm the author of The Essential Guide for Student-Centered Coaching and our new book, Student-Centered Coaching from a Distance. And I'm Brandon Lewis, and I'm an innovation and learning coach in Liberty, Missouri. And this is Student-Centered Coaching, the podcast, where we sit down with coaches and teachers to explore how they are supporting student learning. Our hope is that through sharing these stories, we can all grow together. In this latest episode of Student Center Coaching, the podcast, we wanted to mix it up a little bit for you. Instead of having a third voice on here with Diane and I, I'm actually going to be digging into the origin story of Student Center Coaching with Diane. I mentioned it on here a few episodes ago, how my um, earliest experiences with listening to podcasts was how I built this with Guy Raz. And he does such a good job of just digging deep into origin stories of CEOs and entrepreneurs and their businesses that they start. And we kind of want to take that same approach to really digging into Diane and her story with student center coaching and how it came about. So Diane, thank you for your willingness to do this with us today. Thanks, Brandon. I guess I have to bear my soul today, huh? You are definitely going to do so. And I guarantee you that everyone who's listening is going to appreciate it. So on behalf of me and all the listeners, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited. Those of us that already know you, we kind of know the adult version of Diane. So I thought it'd be kind of fun if we hear about the child of Diane. So can you walk us through a little bit of um, what it was like uh, for Diane growing up? Yeah, that's fun to go way, way back. Um, I grew up in Southern California in a city called Riverside which um, was an amazing place to grow up because it allowed me to be in a really diverse and um, kind of thriving small city outside of the big LA area and, and those bigger cities. And the cool thing about it is growing up, my mom owned a children's bookstore. And so she was kind of known in town. It was a small enough city to where her store was kind of a I guess a stopping off point for teachers, educators. In fact, here and there, I'll run into people who know Riverside. And I mentioned that my mom was the owner of Imagine That Bookstore. And it's always a lot of reminiscing about going there as a teacher or listening to authors, going to book signings. My mom was a huge Harry Potter fan. And so they had huge events and having a mom with a bookstore, you know, growing up that way was sort of adjacent to being an educator, I'd say. So I watched her 
work really hard. It's, you know, running a store is really thankless hard work in a way. And um, it never occurred to me that, geez, I want to be a teacher when I grow up. I didn't really think about that as a kid, but I did love reading and literacy. And I felt as if I had a really strong connection to just this idea of being in a learning space. And that was kind of part of my part of my upbringing too, was just that school was everything. I wasn't allowed to miss a day of school. I, school was really highly valued in my family. So when I began to think about becoming a teacher, it wasn't until after college. And so it, it didn't come early to me. I thought I was gonna be an international businesswoman. And in some ways I think I am. I, was, I majored in international studies in college and minored in business. And I suppose I have a little bit of that in my life these days, but I really trace back um, a lot of my kind of formative years to imagine that and the bookstore and spending time there and meeting authors and having Chris Van Ellsberg sit at our dinner table and hang out and just all of that kind of being around writers was a big part of my childhood. Thinking of you growing up in that atmosphere and in that environment with nothing but books around you, people who read a lot, I equate with learners. I just think it's really cool to think about your mom passing that down to you of first and foremost, just being a learner. And then what way to help others more than helping them how to learn too. So what a really cool connection into education. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So let me ask you this then. You went to the University of Denver. Mm -hmm. Why did you select there then? Well, this is another big part of my life that those of you who know me well know is that um, I'm a big outdoors person. So growing up in Southern California lacked a little bit of what I um, loved, which is being in the woods and skiing and hiking. And um, so when I started looking at colleges, I, I think I really wanted to be able to be immersed in just a different physical environment. So my sister had actually gone to University of Denver and I'd come to here to Denver to visit her. And she was in grad school when I was an undergrad. So it was a soft landing in a way. I knew I had family here in Denver. Um, it was really startling to my friends in California that I was going to college in Denver. I think they didn't know what to think <laughs> because it was so foreign. Um, and I also really wanted to be in a college environment where I could, where there was mostly people who were from other places. Because growing up, another piece of my childhood that was kind of important, I think, is we traveled a lot. Um, we had a VW bus that was one of those camper buses that now would be a collector's item. I wish we still had it. And we would drive all over the Southwest and camp and um, pop that top and sleep up in our camper van. And so now it's really hip and cool to have, um, you know, the van life. We, I started the van life <laughs> and that VW bus broke down a lot and we were stranded multiple times along highways here and there. But um, I really wanted college to be an experience where I could be with people from a lot of different places and, and just have a really strong growth experience. So I know you as Diane Sweeney, the consultant, 
but hearing all of these things, I've still not heard one thing that is shocking to me. Like, I feel like it's so cool. Like I can see how, yeah, that's all of these stories that make sense. Like it has shaped who you are now. And it's like, that's very evident. I just think that's really cool. Yeah. It's fun. So international studies, Mm -hmm. how did you then get to education? Like there's a lot of like easy connections with a lot of career paths, but you're going to have to connect the dots for me. Yeah, it's not, it's not common. I wouldn't say. And before that I was an art major for one year. So throwing a really crazy curveball at you, that didn't last. I realized I loved art, but I wasn't a good maker of art. So I switched. You could appreciate it. (laughs) Yes. It wasn't, I couldn't major in art appreciation. I had to actually create and that wasn't my thing, but International studies, I think, was um, part of that global mindset I was kind of raised with, and it was interesting, and it was stuff I wanted to be learning, and then I graduated, and what do you do (laughs) with that degree? (laughs) You weren't ready to be an ambassador at age 23? And I wasn't that adventurous. I was adventurous, but not that adventurous, so I took a year off. Uh, And I ended up living in Park City, Utah, and really just did all the things I love, skied and mountain biked and had a really, really fun time. And I called my dad and I said, dad, I think I'm going to stay another year in Park City. And he said, you're going to get yourself back here (laughs) because I think he knew he could see me kind of drifting into that um, pretty nomadic lifestyle of being a ski bum. So I packed up my car and I drove back to Southern California and I enrolled in the teaching program at University of California, Irvine. And we had a really nice cohort model where it was a one-year program where we did all of the teacher prep and um, graduated ready to teach or so I thought. I thought I was ready to teach. I had a lot to learn. We all thought we were ready when we graduated. Yes, I know. And so that, yeah, so that's kind of how I ended up. I think I wanted a job or a career, I should say that, where I never got bored. And that was what I remember telling my dad. I think I want to be a teacher because I'll never be bored as an educator. Um, I'll always be challenged. So you got your credential to teach in California. Is that where you started your career or did you head back to someplace a little more adventurous in your mind? (laughs) Well, another funny, this is so funny, all these different crazy decisions I made, I forget about them, but I realized that it was really hard uh, at that time. It was in the mid nineties, early nineties. It was really hard to get a teaching job. And um, I decided I wanted to move back to Colorado I wasn't really having any luck getting a job in California. And then I kind of thought, you know, I probably would be, it would be beneficial to learn some Spanish. I spoke French at the time and I just thought, oh, I'm going to do a Spanish immersion program. So I did that and went to Costa Rica and lived with a family and studied Spanish. And then I came back to Denver And I applied for jobs and I got a job literally three days before school started because I had been in Costa Rica all summer and I don't know what I thought I was going to do, but luckily I landed that job in a really great school in a, in a neighborhood in Denver that has a large Spanish speaking population. 
but I think they might've thought I spoke a little more Spanish than I did. <laughs> um, and I'm sure and I, your resume didn't lead them astray at all, <laughs> but it was, um, it was an amazing place to land. So it just all kind of worked out. Tell us a little bit about Miss Rosenberg in those early years of your career. In this school, which was really um, a lot of free, like hundred percent free and reduced lunch, pretty much. So I struggled. I had 33 fourth and fifth grade kids in that first year teaching combo. I got the combo class with all the kids because I was hired three days before school started. Oh, and I had desks that were broken and no materials. I had, luckily I had a mom with a bookstore because I was able to stock my own classroom library. It was really, really hard. And then my school started partnering with Public Education Business Coalition, which does a lot of work in supporting literacy. Um, you might have heard of, you know, Debbie Miller and and um, my old friend Ellen Keene and Steph Harvey. So we started partnering with that nonprofit and that's based out out of Denver. And I started getting some support in my classroom with kind of a coach like person. Um, I, we didn't call them coaches back then, but that was my one of my earliest experiences as a teacher getting some coaching and man, did I need it. I was, I was drowning. And so I felt really intrigued by this idea that, well, we could actually have people in classrooms helping teachers. Cause it, it felt kind of like once you graduated from your teaching school, it, the assumption was that you were, like we said, ready to go. So my early years teaching, I was really lucky to be in a school that was thinking pretty out of the box at that time with supporting teachers to do good work in a pretty challenging environment. So how many years did you stay at that same school? I was at that school for eight years. Um, I transitioned from being a teacher into being a literacy coach there. We um, shifted to school-wide Title I and got some funding for coaching. And I got to be a literacy coach. And my friend Charmaine Keaton was the math coach. So we had and this again was, this was before really anybody was talking about coaching. So I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I was, I was, <laughs> I made so many mistakes. It's, it's, <laughs> I wish I could go back and do it all over again. There's a part of me that wants to, to see a, a video of you in your first coaching session with a teacher <laughs> that first year. No, no, no. We don't <laughs> want to have nightmares like that. <laughs> Actually, no, it would probably be fine because my first coaching conversations, all I did is buddy up with my friends and work in really easy places in the school. And I, I found that I could work really well with um, a, a few, you know, some of the teachers and other teachers wanted nothing to do with me. So I just avoided them and it was fine. <laughs> yeah, and everyone was happy, right? Everybody was happy. <laughs> Earlier, you had mentioned that you had done some partnering with PEBC, um, and I know eventually you actually started to go and work for them. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm so grateful still to this day to that organization because they gave me such space as a learner. It really goes back to that need to expand and learn in every possible way I, could, I can. I think that's like kind of ingrained in my psyche. And so what happened is I transitioned from working in one school to 
developing kind of support systems, I'd say, for multiple schools in that part of Denver. So we had a feeder patterns of schools, and I got to work with PEBC to support the feeder pattern in my part of town where my school had been. So I still got to work with my, my school, but I was doing it kind of through this nonprofit, and I was kind of on loan back to Denver Public Schools. And it was such a cool opportunity just because... I think one of the things that they did is they believed way I could do more than I ever would have thought I could do. And they pushed me into really challenging spaces of things like um, I was coaching in four different schools for a while. And in those four schools, I was I had no coaching model, no coaching framework. But I loved it because it was so challenging. Um, at the time, I was also I think I had was having our son who's now 18. And um, so I just remember driving from school to school and, you know, partnering with these four principals and working alongside them and trying to build these connections with teachers. One of, I guess, my most formative experiences in all of that time frame was how I was so excited to develop things like book studies and learning labs and create all these opportunities for teachers to learn. I think I orient myself like that, like I wanna be a learner that I just assumed everybody else did. Um, and I created so many cool ways for people to learn. And I remember sitting in, in a friend's office down at the downtown district headquarters for Denver Public Schools. And I was telling her all these cool things I was doing. I was doing this and I was doing that. and she looked at me and she said, what about the kids? And it was like a gut punch. I was, I mean, I, <laughs> I think that was when I realized that I couldn't just be thinking about creating opportunities for adults to learn. And I honestly had completely stopped thinking about kids. I wasn't thinking about kids much at all. And that's super interesting to think about. How did I go from being a teacher to that space? Um, so I drove home that day and I remember the drive home and this is like 18 years ago. And she barely, I don't even think this friend of mine even remembers this conversation, but I sure do. And so I drove home and I, the whole way I thought, shame on me. How could I not be thinking about these kids in these classrooms? And that's when I started thinking, how can I make sure I never do that again? And so I started going through all of my stuff in my computer, all my files, all of my protocols, everything I had been doing and using with teachers. And I looked at it all through the lens of, are the kids here or not? Is this something where we're really thinking and talking about kids and their learning? Or is this something where we're just talking about teaching practice in isolation? And I started re revamping and throwing all my old stuff away and recreating a bunch of new ways of thinking about my work. And one of the big ways is just to start using student evidence. I think I started doing that because I wanted to have a kind of a mechanism in place that I knew was kind of a boundary. So I knew if I was talking about student evidence, then I knew I was honoring that hope that I could figure out how to make sure kids weren't forgotten again. So that's kind of where those times when I was working in those four schools, working with PEBC, 
that was a really important time in my life, but it was really hard too. I have to be honest. For me as a coach for the past six years, the student-centered coaching model is all that I know. And then since I moved to my current district, even as a teacher working with a coach, this is all that I've known. So to hear you talk about coaching without this model, and then it be something as simple and yet as powerful as that question of what about the kids? Like to just completely turn it on its head. That is really powerful. And that's really cool. I like that a lot. I also had a couple other things happening at that time, I think that were really informative. One is I have a a friend and thinking partner who was asking the same question. So I was able to think with her on practices we could be using, you know, her, her mantra was, what are we doing if we're not moving kids? And so that helped me a lot. And then also at the time we were studying backward planning in, in the district. So that was a way for me to attach to a system because this idea would have been hard to execute if I hadn't had that backward design framework to build student-centered coaching off of. If, if that hadn't been in place, if that came later, I think I would have fumbled around a lot more. But I was able to think, okay, if, if backward design is about what do we want kids to know and do, and then creating a plan to get there, why can't coaching be about the same thing? Everything that you're talking about, all I keep hearing, even though you've never said the word, I just keep hearing passion in -hmm. everything you're talking about. Um, and I kind of feel like it's not trying to get sappy or anything here, but like in everything you've talked about, even in your years before that, I feel like there's this overarching theme of passion that you have in everything you've done. And to think about where Diane Sweeney consulting is right now in the model of student-centered coaching Like it couldn't be where it was or where it is right now if it wasn't for all that passion that you have. And I love hearing all that as we're leading up to it. So you were at PEBC and then all of a sudden you realize, okay, I think it's time to make a decision. You channeled your mom's entrepreneurial spirit and all the different things that your mom and dad instilled in you into doing things that were maybe different or that were hard. And you followed your passion and you listened to your heart and you took a giant risk. When I decided to just focus completely on coaching was um, I was having kids. So I kind of thought, oh, well, this is like, this will pay a few bills and um, I'll just, you know, maybe have to travel a few days a month and I can really just be a good mom and be around my kids and have a little more flexibility. And I remember telling my husband that I wanted to do this and he's, I I was scared. Um, and, and he said, you've been good at everything you've ever done before this. Why would this be any different? And at that point I was like, okay. And I remember talking to my sister and she said the same thing. And I wasn't thinking about building some business or anything at the time. I kind of mostly was motivated because I felt like if there is so much struggle for me as a coach, there's got to be other people out there too. And PBC had a big ethic around book, book writing and authorship. So that's when I wrote student-centered coaching. The first book was just because I felt like maybe there's an audience out there of other coaches who are just trying to figure out how to do their day-to-day work and who are struggling just like I had been. 
Um, no framework, no structures, no real model, just this label of now you're a coach. That was a big piece of it was writing and trying to figure out what this framework even was, what this model even was. Lo and behold, there were people out there, like I thought there must be, that were also kind of in, I, I think of this as really a community. That's where a lot of my passion comes from is just building a community of people who are grappling with the same things. It's so fun to just keep seeing that community grow, people who are interested in this work. And there was a community out there of struggling coaches who were running into all the same problems I was running into, people who didn't want to be coached, um, no way to measure impact, um, this propensity to just focus on teacher behaviors and, and you know create all of this kind of um, animosity towards coaches. So that was really at that point when I was trying to figure out what student-centered coaching even was, is kind of how it, how it landed. What you just stated about writing your book and a lot of the process of that helps you even learn and dig more into the model that you were developing at the same time. It sounds like you started consulting at the same time as trying to write this book. Am I right with that? Yeah, I'm, I think that it went together because to write the book, I had to have figure out the model. And same with consulting, I had to figure out the model. And so it really did happen kind of at the same time. And a funny story is I, I wrote a proposal for the book and I submitted it to a publishing company that um, everybody knows, but I won't mention. <laughs> and I got this really mean email back saying, oh, this is a terrible idea. No one's going to want this book. This is, um, this book is, the coaches are all going to be gone in the next few years. No, this isn't going to last. And this was, you know, this was over 10, 15 years ago. I can't remember the exact time, but so I went to dinner with my friends who are also educators and, you know, my thinking partner crowd, who we all sit together and talk educational reform. <laughs> and I told them about it and they said, oh no, you need to try again. And I was pretty heartbroken. I felt like, oh, I thought this was a really good idea. I spent months on the proposal. And so I submitted it to Corwin and I got an email back the day it was received. And it was from who became my editor, who I love, Dan Albert. He's a miracle man. I just, he's just an amazing soul and such a great editor. And he said, I want to talk to you. We're going to publish this book on the phone the first time we ever met. And so I guess that's kind of that perseverance, right? Finding the right partnerships, finding the people who also are passionate. And he just saw that this was a, this was also needed. He knew enough to know that this was needed. And it was so funny because my first title for the first book was, I was, I suggested calling it the next generation of instructional coaching. And he said, that could come off a little wrong. I think maybe student-centered coaching would be a better title. So I didn't even think of that term, student-centered coaching. That came from Dan. That is really cool. You have a lot yeah. of Dan, you have a lot of Dan's in your life. Yeah, I've got Dan the <laughs> editor and Dan my husband. Yep. <laughs> you had mentioned that one of your areas of passion with coaching was to help coaches that you felt like were struggling or didn't have that support. But I feel like from my end, I think it's really fascinating that not only do you help coaches that are like that, there are so many coaches that work in districts that I think now have jobs because of the work you've done though. So I almost feel like there's that sense of you advocating for coaching 
to where that has helped coaching grow and expand nationwide. So you may have felt like you were starting to help the ones that were already doing that, that needed that help. But I could look at it from a completely different lens on like, if you hadn't done all that, like I might not be sitting here right now in this position because maybe this was not something that my district or other districts around decided that this was valuable and that this was needed. So I feel like I want to say thank you to that too, for not only making that happen, not only like for, for advocating, but just, yeah, I just, I, I'm, I'm very appreciative of you for following your passion and following your heart and not giving up when the unnamed publishing company said no, that you did stick with it from your grit, from all your perseverance and that you did do it because you followed your heart. So thank you for that. I've never thought about it like that. I cannot even, my mind is blown by that idea that maybe I helped propel coaching to, to be more of a part of our fabric of our schools. I just literally, I always just think there's coaches out there who need support and I'm, I, I love to be the one that gets to give it to them. So that's really interesting to think about. My first five years teaching was in California. I always would come to Kansas City to visit family um, and had a lot of friends that were teachers here and they had talked about how they had coaches and I was so intrigued by that and I remember them telling me a little bit about it and I was like that's actually like that's it like that's actually what I want to do and I feel like a lot of the the characteristics of this role in this position are things that I had thought about that I kind of desired in my early years. And maybe it's because it's, I didn't have that. So maybe it was from a lack of that. You know, I had mentor teachers and stuff like that, that I looked up to and worked with, but it was some of those characteristics of my current role that I kind of longed for, but didn't know that something like that existed. So it was really cool early on in my career to find out like, oh, something like this does exist. And then to now be doing that, obviously, coming full circle, um, makes me really excited. Yeah, that's, it's, yeah, I think there's just certain educators that are really as equally intrigued by working with adult learners as kids. And it's challenging. Working with adults is different, but being a coach is a whole different skill set. It's a whole, I mean, you have to know good teaching, but you have to know a whole lot of other stuff too. And I would say too, and this goes back, this speaks to a lot of things you have mentioned already. And I know this about myself, one of my favorite things about coaching, and I'm, assume, I'm assuming it's the same for you working with coaches, is that you leave every PD that you do or every coaching lab or whatever it is that you're doing when you're consulting, I guarantee you that you leave learning more too than when you entered. Yep. And so being able to continue being that learner, even in this role, makes it, makes it all the better. Absolutely. Yep. I happened in a coaching lab yesterday. I walked out thinking in new ways about something that I had not walked in thinking about. So it's, it's constant. Was there any moment when you started consulting that you realized, oh, this, this could be bigger than me trying to provide flexibility for my family? Like, was there any point when you're like, okay, I think I might be onto something that might be bigger than what I thought? I think so. And I, I think about like Jim Collins work, he wrote good to great. And he talks about the flywheel in his work. And that flywheel starts turning 
as soon as you really work hard and doggedly and you kind of try to build something, right, um, that others can grab onto. And I started seeing that happening. I'd say it took longer than I thought it would. And it took a lot more time and harder work than I thought it would because theoretically it's a great idea, but it's just nobody knew I existed. You know, that it was just, I was a voice in the wilderness. But what's happened over the years, I think that's interesting is first of all, school districts are really should be and are outcomes-based organizations. So I felt it getting bigger as people started realizing that coaching needed to hit measurable growth, or, you know, create measurable growth for kids and teachers at the same time. Once that connection was made where, oh, coaching can do both. We can improve teaching and grow kids simultaneously. Then school districts started seeking out student-centered coaching because it was it met their goals. It met their organizational requirements far more than coaching had in the past. For a really long time, I was literally a voice in the wilderness. I mean, I was, I, I, I considered myself a disruptor, right? The whole way that student, that instructional coaching is described, written about, people are trained, other form, other frameworks and models always, always, always fight, focus on teacher behavior. And um, over the years, I feel as if more folks are starting to see it through that lens that, um, that we can't just focus on teacher behavior because that's not why kids go to school. I mean, we have to be knowing that they're making a difference with kids in the lives of kids. And so I think I started to feel that energy going and that flywheel moving and now it's just sort of this big community of people who also are thinking in that same way about instructional coaching and student-centered coaching just fits what they're trying to achieve with both teacher and student growth. This might be a really simple question or it might actually be really deep. I'm not sure, but how do you know that student-centered coaching is working? How do you know it's effective? Yeah, it's so hard to measure coaching. And um, there's just so many variables, right? You've got um, classrooms where teachers are running the show, right? Coaches don't take, take over. You can't do a control study where you have these kids get great support and these kids don't. That's unethical. So um, over the decades, I've really had to make peace with measuring our impact qualitatively um, because our work is really about measuring impact day to day, conversation to conversation with student evidence, with assessments, um, formative and summative. Uh, so we really measure our impact just based on what kind of growth happened across coaching cycles. And that is always gonna be assessment-based, but also behavior-based. So how the kids grow and how the teacher grow. Um, our systems that we work with really want to know, they wanna they want to know that information as they should so that they know coaching is reaching the goals and that they can um, advocate for it with their school boards and such. And so we work with coaches to, um, you know, collect that information in a really coherent way and share it with their broader stakeholders. 
And I'm okay with that because I think a lot of these studies of instructional coaching are very much teacher-centered studies where they're measuring, did teachers change in their practice? And that's just not our model. So why would we measure something that we're not, that that's not our focus? So qualitative measures with assessments across coaching cycles is really where we, where we measure our impact. In a typical Guy Raz fashion, I'm curious to know the success that this coaching model has had, the success that your consulting group has had over the past decade plus, would you attribute that more to, I don't want to say luck, but like convenient timing in a lot of, um, in, in an era when education reform is so heavy or do you attribute it to a lot of the stuff we've been talking about? And it's uh, the passion in that work and um, the model itself that focuses on student growth. That's such a hard question to answer because it's so multifaceted. I think the timing was huge. I think the fact that I was trying to figure out and solve a problem a little bit before other people were also thinking about and trying to solve the same problem gave me a bit of a head start. I also think writing is hard work. A lot of people want to write books. And it is, it's one thing to want to and another thing to actually like sit down and make it happen. I, and, yeah, I want to write a book. <laughs> You haven't I mean, even started. Can. It's the it's the time it's the the time it takes. So, I do think a lot of it had to do with timing. I think a lot of it had to do with asking the right questions, and um, I think a lot of it is just about trying to solve a real problem that exists. And then when you go down that road of trying to solve a real problem that exists, others will always join you. Make sure you tune in to our next episode as we continue this conversation with Diane and we focus on the core practices and structures that are used within this coaching model. Student-Centered Coaching, the podcast is brought to you by Diane Sweeney Consulting. For more information, visit dianesweeney.com. Music is brought to you by Clemency. You can check them out at clemencyonline.com. There you can find more information on how to download their music. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast where podcasts are found and follow us on Twitter at SC Coaching Pod.